people have absolutely no so confidence in Baltimore City Police. They violated their constitutional rights to be secure within their person and their property. It's like the police don't have any respect for us, period. It's a lot of brothers and women, too, that's incarcerated for things they had nothing to do with. Not a panacea. Constitutional policing just means treat everyone equally. Welcome to Truth and Reconciliation, a podcast that recounts the troubled history of law enforcement in Baltimore and the search for solutions to heal from it. A forum for providing a voice for people who have suffered at the hands of law enforcement and to inform and empower others through their experiences. And a show ultimately about holding power accountable through stories, thoughts, and discussion. A podcast about what ails us and sustains us too as we try to cure the violence that plagues the city. I'm Stephen Janis. I'm Taya Graham. And I'm Sean Yost, and we're your hosts. You know, I was staring down the muzzles of uh, four, I think, Baltimore Police 40 calibers. Today we continue our series of shows about the early attempts to hold police accountable through media and personal accounts. A look at the consequences and fallout for the people who took a stand against police and the journalists who covered them before the uprising and the Department of Justice investigation. But it's also a series about how Baltimore police in the past have had both the political power and the resources to construct a damning narrative to silence critics by using the criminal justice system to dominate the dialogue about what justice means. And how that abuse of power has had serious consequences for the community the Baltimore City Police Department purports to serve, and how it continues to define how our city is policed. All that coming up next on Truth and Reconciliation. Mama says she wants the best for me. But Mama says success ain't free. If I only had my wings, I'd leap away. But since I only had my dreams, I sleep all day. What will awaken me? Where has my soul taken me? Creativity seeps and keeps me afloat. Lower the bridge over the deep moat. Lower the bridge so I can So this series is about the power of the narrative, really, and the narrative that is constructed through the process of law enforcement. And, you know, it was interesting, Sean, uh, this week the police spokesman T.J. Smith resigned. Mm, yeah. But it was how he resigned, you know, and we did an article for the Afro right. about that, with this narrative about Baltimore being over-policed, which, which I thought was curious because he said it after he left. These criticisms, which would have been more, I think, appropriately applied to policing as it was happening. Suddenly, he says it after he left and you know, wants to make a big stink about who, you know, that he had this perspective on policing that he never talked about before. What did you think about it? Well, I, it was fascinating um, to mm-hmm. hear him admit that 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 Baltimore City, the leadership of Baltimore City is asking the police to do stuff they have no business doing. Yeah. Number one. <laughs> Number two, it just I think it just speaks to the absolute constraints that are placed upon every member of the department to do, to tow the department line. And you can't say we shouldn't be doing certain things if you're towing the department line. The department line says we take orders, we follow orders, and whatever those orders are, we 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 do what we're told. But isn't that at the crux of what's wrong with of the whole process? Because of course. if T.J. Smith and the police leadership said, you know what, we're doing things we shouldn't be doing. Isn't it incumbent upon them to say that and be honest with the public? Well, I, I, 
it it would seem like it would be but if 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 the command staff says this is the narrative that we're putting forward and the command staff gets that narrative or some sort of I don't know simulation of that not simulation but if 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 the if if the command staff is receiving orders from city hall mm-hmm. and so they can't break that chain of command for yeah. lack of a better term I guess and 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 quite frankly the narrative may have been established even before this current administration the narrative sure. may have came has been probably in place for decades that this is what policing is right and it, and it can have any excess. Now, Taylor, you had a, another sort of experience this week with this idea of telling a story, which was there was a protest outside City Hall uh, sponsored by the ACLU about gag orders that come along with settlements of police brutality lawsuits. Um, what, what were people basically saying and what was the concern? Well, quite a few residents showed in order to show their support for the removal of these gag orders. And what these gag orders do is that if someone receives a settlement from the Baltimore City Police Department, if they they themselves or a loved one has been brutalized and they win some money in a civil suit against the Baltimore police, in order to receive that money, they have to sign off on never being able to speak about that incident. And the ACLU is essentially saying that this is a violation of someone's free speech. And it doesn't it also doesn't allow the taxpayers who are the ones footing the bill for these lawsuits to know what happened, why it happened, who it happened with. And what is more related, even more important to our discussion about police narrative and people like T.J. Smith is that Baltimore City doesn't have the same constraint, which is where the conflict came from this piece. Baltimore City can say whatever they want. It's only the person who is a victim. And here again, Sean, you know, I feel like we're we're up against something. We're we're getting towards the idea that the police department is a great narrative mechanism because they can say anything they want about the person who was a, was a, was a victim, but the but the victim can't say anything. How is that possible with taxpayer money? I think about think about this, um, and I think Ted was one. I think you both worked on a story that gave the example of the woman who basically was just defending herself online. Mm-hmm. That's exactly, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, um, think about... She was defending herself from criticism from the city when the city said things about her and the settlement. Right. And all she did was post uh, a response on social on media. On, on Facebook. On, ex- exactly. And all she did was defend herself, and in doing so, lost half her settlement. The police department took half her money back. I, I can't... I. I, I mean... Even in this era of fake news and 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 uh, alter- alternate facts, and that just seems out incredible. Well, so what we're going to do next is we're going to tell a story about a narrative that uh, you know really still kind of astounds me, which was when my editor at the Baltimore Examiner newspaper was arrested, and and the reason I brought it up in the context of what we're talking about is because the police were able to take something and build a narrative out of it and make it seem like my editor was some crazed shotgun wielding man when he wasn't and they did it while we were the first publication to publish all the overtime salaries of Baltimore Police Department so it's a critical and a classic case and it relates to what we're talking about so all that is coming up next on truth and reconciliation
This story starts with an idea that I've encountered many times as a reporter. A concept that is rooted in the idea of crime itself and its relationship to Baltimore. And that idea is secrecy. That is that in some sense, in Baltimore, there is an overarching belief that hiding the reality of the problems like crime, for example, is a more expedient solution than addressing the underlying issue. It's a concept that is baked into the process of governance. It's why for years crime stats have been questioned. For example, the police department was scrutinized for under-reporting rapes, categorizing hundreds of cases as unfounded. And it's at the root of this story, a tale about what Baltimore police did when their culture of secrecy was challenged by the media. A story which reveals much about the underlying imperative of the institution itself. And how police engaged in a pattern of retaliating against its critics. A practice that was cited in the Justice Department report, which found the department also practiced unconstitutional and racist tactics. To set this story up, we have to go back in time where there was very little transparency about a facet of policing that continues to be controversial, overtime pay. In 2007, the overtime pay of the city police department exploded, reaching almost $40 million. That was almost $30 million over budget, and it prompted the staff of the Baltimore Examiner to take a closer look. However, unlike the present, where all employee salaries are posted on a city website, back in 2007, there was no public information on how much city workers were earning, which is when my colleague Luke Broadwater and I began working on an investigation into overtime pay in the police department. Stephen and I, who sat next to each other at the Baltimore Examiner, I was assigned to uh, city police and he was assigned to city hall. And we had come across information that overtime was really spiraling out of control in the police department. Um, and and back in back in those days, unlike today, where all the salary information is is posted online, um, that was all kept very very close to the belt back then. Um, so what we did is we filed some uh, Public Information Act requests, and we asked for not only all the salary databases, but also how much these officers were earning in overtime, um, to try to discern how many hours people were actually working and where all this money was going. And what we saw was some pretty uh, shocking stuff, which yeah. was uh, incredible hours that some officers were purported to be working. I mean, we're talking about uh, double, triple their salaries working, mm -hmm. I think 80, 100-hour weeks, if I recall. Yeah, we, there was there was one guy um, who is still a police officer today. Well, he's not, he just retired, um, Albert Marcus, who we figured out was working like 18 hours a day every day for seven days a week. <laughs> so it was it was pretty extraordinary. Yeah, that's right. And um, so uh, we, uh, you know, uh, there were a couple angles we were pursuing. One, why is there such a lack of fiscal control mm -hmm. inside the police department? Why does there seem to be a blank check for overtime spending for the police? Um, you know, other other agencies aren't allowed to operate that way. You don't see DPW or mm. uh, transportation uh, running way, way over their overtime budgets. But it seemed that the police department was allowed to do this with no repercussions whatsoever. But I mean, the basic thesis of the story was like this is not being controlled. And um, it's hard to explain how someone's able to work almost nonstop and earn this kind of money. And of course, you know, there were people who were making to double or triple their salary. So mm -hmm. yeah, we, we, we published that. And that was probably the first time 
that I think any media outlet had really taken a close look at the overtime. We took a really hard look, and and I think what we uh, showed is some problems that still persist to this day, Yeah, where you still have... I think seven of the top 10 city employees, highest paid city employees are police. Yep. Uh, something like- um, Making more than the mayor. Yeah, something like 40 out of the top 50. Mm-hmm. You've got a bunch of people making uh, more than the mayor because mm-hmm. of this. And more than the, even the state's attorneys are the highest paid, so. The response to the story was swift, particularly when the examiner made a critical decision to publish all the salaries of police officers. So that, that was really a pivotal point because we had initially just published the top 10. And that was controversial enough. But then we had this, you know, Excel spreadsheet with every single police officer in their overtime. And we made the decision to put it on our website. Do you remember the fallout from that? I remember there was tremendous backlash. I remember oh, yeah. we got a ton of emails, a ton of angry calls. I think the police union got involved. Oh, uh, there were was... calls from, I believe, the city solicitor at the time. Mm-hmm. They were very upset about it. But th- let me just point out the one thing you mentioned, which was to me really, I, I really clearly remember the phone call from George Nielsen, who was a city solicitor, in Frank's office, screaming at our editor, Frank Kagan, saying that we had just revealed uh, undercover officers who were working undercover, who apparently they don't know how to exclude them, and that we were going to jeopardize their lives by publishing their salary. Enter the editor-in-chief of The Examiner, Frank Keegan. He was, to say the least, an editor straight from Central Casting. I think that's a great description of Frank. I mean, Frank was, if you were, if you wanted to pick a crotchety old editor <laughs> for a movie, you would yeah. pick Frank Keegan. I mean, he used to walk around the office yelling at everyone, mm-hmm. sometimes for no real reason, it seemed. Uh, he used to call everyone by their last name. I mean, mm-hmm. Janice, get over here, Janice. <laughs> Did you see this, Janice? You know, so yep. he... Uh, he, uh, <laughs> you know, he's a crotchety, cranky, cranky guy. Yeah, he loved to envision himself as a real uh, freedom fighter mm-hmm. and a tough guy. He was holding uh, oh. the city accountable and the government accountable. And, uh, you know, he really stood by us during that overtime issue. Yeah. And I think fought the city on it and said, no, we're, we this is public information. The taxpayers need to see how their money's spent. And we're publishing it, and we don't care how many times you call us up and yell at us. Yeah. We're going to do it anyway. Yeah, I mean, Frank was, he could be grumpy, but he was a classic dyed-in-the-wool journalist in the sense that he felt, you know, the public had a right to know, and he didn't give a crap what anyone right. said, <laughs> because he got a lot of crap. And Stephen spoke to Frank by phone. Can you identify hey, yourself, please? Yeah, it's Stephen, Janet. How are you? <laughs> you called us before, and then it went right to busy, then I tried to call you and went to nowhere. The the NSA has temps on today. So also during this time period, you know, when we were really going to battle on this overtime issue, Frank wrote a column, a very incendiary column, um, where he really took the city to task for secrecy. But I thought fellow police officers might want to know who's getting what in overtime. Mm -hmm. Because I knew a couple of officers, a few, let's call it a few, it was more than a couple, mm-hmm. less than a lot, um, who, and I think it was true, they were working overtime and not getting paid for it. So I'm sure it was just a coincidence that there was an incident at my house less than 24 hours after I published the police payroll, and of course it was a coincidence that after the owners chickened and took the data down, 
from our website um, that they kind of decided, the city decided maybe giving me subpoena powers wasn't that great an idea. I, I wanted a trial. I just couldn't afford it. And I was well, so, my own, so. So, so you, because you, I remember you also got, like, I remember after we published it, like the city solicitor called up and threatened you. I remember oh, yeah. that. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. What happened? I got so many threats, and a couple of them I did. I've gotten lots of threats. I mean, over the years, and, and you kind of go by, wait a minute, this one sounds real, and, and I kind of, a couple of them, a few of them, somebody said, uh, caller said, somebody's going to blow a hole in your head, and and I don't know if you're there, but I got the whole, everybody who was in the office, all the part, business, advertising, everybody got them together in the conference room and said, look, I got to warn you all to look out, because, you know, make sure... Your turn signals work and your light, your registration's up to date because mm-hmm. I'd been in experiences before where they didn't really care who from the paper they hassled. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I had had a meeting that morning. Uh, unfortunately, I think Beatty was there. He was out. And I said, you people have to understand the seriousness of this. And... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, just, you know, be careful to keep your eyes open. I said, I think I'm the main one thereafter. But, you know, you never know. We had the fastest growing website in the world, the guys in Denver said, until the servers crashed. There were so many uh, accesses that it actually overloaded our servers. I remember going to City Hall one day, and this police officer pulls me aside, because when you go into City Hall, there are two police officers there. And I was going up to for a hearing on overtime and he said just let me tell you this he said don't call us if something happens to you because mm. we're not coming and that was the kind of stuff we were hearing on the streets but Frank was like bring it on <laughs> you know? yeah I know he loved to thunder and uh, with uh, with you know righteous uh, mm-hmm. righteous indignation on mm-hmm. his side he um, you know I think that that, ha- that happens when you feel like you're on the right side of an issue when yeah. you know you're on the, the morally correct side of an issue yeah. and it's hard to argue against uh, transparency it's hard to argue right. against accountability and that's what we were doing and so you know he felt very comfortable lambasting the city over mm-hmm. their opposition to releasing this information So it was like, I think it was like literally like 1230 at night. And um, I get a call from one of my sources. I had a source in Central Booking, which of course was, a, which is the cities where everyone goes, it gets arrested by the Baltimore police. And, and so having a source there is pretty important because, you know, a lot of big stories happen when people end up getting carted off to jail, which happens all the time in Baltimore. So I get this call and I, I'm like, I better answer this. It's like 1230. And he's like, uh, <clears throat> Do you have an editor that lives in the Southwest District? And I'm like, uh, yeah, I think so, because I, I had, I think I'd been to Frank's house, so I kind of knew where it was. And he says, well, um, he just got arrested, so uh, you better get down to Central Booking. <laughs> and I was like, what? I, I just, I was like, are you sure? And he's like, I think, I think they just arrested him. You better do something. Yeah. So I, I, I'm somebody who doesn't sleep with my phone next to my head because I actually like to sleep. <laughs> uh, but, but when I got up that morning. Uh, you know, still pretty early. Um, I remember seeing a bunch of missed calls from the other editor at the paper, Tim Mayer, 
And uh, I, when I called him back, the first things he said to me was, they got Frank. <laughs> and I said, what do, you, what do you mean they got Frank, Tim? What are you talking about they got Frank? And he said, they arrested Frank. And he starts to explain the whole situation right. to me. Uh, I had no idea what he was talking about. I didn't know, I, I was maybe at first, was he arrested for something he wrote? I mean, that, that yeah. can't be possible. When they arrested you, how did they treat you? Like, what did they say to you? Can you talk about oh, that part? Oh, oh, they were having a good time, man. They were having really? a good time. Handcuffed Tell me what handcuffed Barb. And I remember one guy on the radio saying, you got to send the paddy wagon for this paddy. We're going to need the paddy wagon for this one. And they handcuffed so, your uh, bike, too? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Why not? You know? Um... No, they have told you know Americans don't understand your your rights as an American citizen really don't engage all that quickly when you're dealing with the police. You know, yeah. I mean we, we have gov- we have governments now killing American citizens without probable cause or due process. Right. Okay. Right. And, and the so-called conservatives are okay with that. I mean. In, in colonial America, British troops could not do that without being charged with a crime. You know, I was staring down the muzzles of uh, four, I think, Baltimore Police 40 calibers. So you, you were, you're sitting there and you get a knock on the door? Did they, did they... I was sound asleep. We were in bed. We had been asleep for two hours. We were sound asleep, and suddenly there's all this screeching and pounding on our door, and I thought, bingo, this is it, man. Here they come. You know? I knew what it was. You knew? What? Rob, I just, less than 24 hours before, had received death threats. What would you do? So what happened? What would you do? Right, what? What, happened when you the, what happened when you opened the door? I was staring down the muzzles of uh, Baltimore police officer service weapons. It's amazing how big a forty cal looks from that angle. By the way, you know, so what were, you, were you thinking? They were, what were you thinking at that moment? I was thinking I was a dead man. I just wanted to make sure nothing happened to Barb. Huh. I mean, once you were in their power, you were in their power. And then I know when the paddy wagon showed up, the South commander went up to the window of the driver's side and was pointing at the guy and said, this one's by the book. It better be by the book. I told you that. I thought they were doing yeah. that. What are they, I don't remember what they call it in Baltimore and other jurisdictions. They called it, you know, slam bam or soften them up or something like that. You rough get rides. The, they call them rough rides. Rough rides in Baltimore. You get, it, you get it up to about 45 miles an hour and slide the guy all the way to the back on the slick bench seats and then you slam on the brakes and he smashes against the steel bulkhead, you know. So, uh, you know, eventually what happens with everyone who gets charged in central booking is you get charging documents eventually are filed and released and I remember the next morning uh, Tim or one of the editors had the charging documents and they're like this doesn't look good for Frank 
because uh, basically the story was that Frank had uh, been smoking in his in his row home down in um, you know down in southwest Baltimore, and the neighbors said it was affecting their child had asthma or something, and so supposedly the neighbors had brought over their kid for some reason and banged on the door, and they alleged that Frank had pointed a shotgun not out of his house but from inside his house at their child. And, you know, when you read the charging documents, it made it seem like Frank was, like, pointing a gun at a kid, which which did, wasn't true. But nevertheless, when I read them, at first I was like, oh, this is, uh, this is weird. I mean, but, you know, uh, you know when one thing you learn about charging documents is you got to be careful in Baltimore police because they're, as we know now, they're extremely creative. Yeah, I remember initially um, thinking, huh, is this a crime? Um, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. Uh, he had stayed in his house. He had, you know, I'm looking at this as, as he didn't a, open the window as a court reporter would, um, and and he he stayed inside his house. He does have a gun that he legally owns inside the house. Is he allowed to point it through a door inside his own house at someone banging on his door in the middle of the night? Uh, that's that's a tough question. That's a tough question for the court. And and I, I didn't think it was this clear-cut case where Frank had necessarily done something wrong. And and sure enough, I think it sparked quite a bit of discussion about, yeah. about this issue in the local media. Well, one thing that I remember really clearly is that, you know, woke up and there's Frank's mugshot on the front page of the Baltimore Sun website. I mean... You know, it's not every day that the editor of a major newspaper gets arrested. And certainly the story that the police told that made it seem like, uh, you know, Frank had done something wrong was widely circulated through the media. Um, uh, But, you know, like the questions you're talking about are pretty important, but we're not really, you know, they just kind of got wrapped up in. Sure. I'm not accusing the son of anything, but. People it's just a, got, it's people a sexy got, story. It's a real, you know, you, you know, got an editor, editor of the rival newspaper is arrested in the middle of the night with mm-hmm. a shotgun, and he's allegedly pointing it at a child. Right. I mean, I'm, I'll write that story. Right. You know? right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I get why they covered it and blew it up for sure. Yeah, and it was like, I, I don't know if he ended up on the front. I'm pretty sure he ended up on the front page. So it was just a weird thing as a reporter. You know, you're having this battle with the police department, and the next thing you know, then wake up the next morning, and the, there's a mugshot of the picture of your editor in chief on the other newspaper. And I kind of felt like, wow, we're really kind of out in the desert here by ourselves because you, how could you not connect what happened with what, our coverage, what happened to Frank? Yeah, know? I think if I recall, I had to write one of those stories mm-hmm. uh, for the examiner. And so I had to be very fair about just sticking to the facts and what was alleged and what wasn't alleged. And, um, you know, that's always hard to do when you're a sure. reporter and you have to write about your own boss. Um, so, you know, uh, I'd like to go back and review that story and see whether I would have done anything differently now with with years of experience. But I, I remember trying to be very fair and just the facts, ma'am, as I wrote it. So the controversy of Keegan's arrest revealed for Stephen something about policing that he was just beginning to understand. I think the thing about it was that I would have thought, you know, uh, that an attack on the media like that, which is the way I was starting to look at it after I kind of reviewed the facts, would have been more broadly taken up by other media, you know, to defend the press against this kind of attack, you know, because once you, you know, kind of 
Luke, you were very smart about what you said, you know, that you kind of started looking at it like a court reporter. Once you got past the emotion of the charging document and started looking at it, you kind of realized it's a little absurd. I mean, you, you, you can't really charge a person for picking up a shotgun in their own house. Uh, and you can't necessarily, you know, make this equation that somehow he's threatening a child. And I started to realize, wow, you know, in, in, in towns, in this town, we're kind of on our own. Uh, taken on the police department because no one's really going to, they're going to just take this narrative and run with it. And I think it was, for me, uh, something that I kind of knew, but by the time Frank got arrested, I was like, wow, we're really in trouble. For Frank, he was confronted with the risk and dilemma of being in central booking. What happened? How was it in central booking? What was it like? I mean, did they treat you? How did they, because I know I got a call. And, yeah. Uh, how, how was it over there? Like, what happened? Well, I mean, very honestly, um, well, I think I told you afterwards. I just picked up on some things. I I thought there was pretty well run operation, um, all things considered. Uh, but I definitely got the impression that the gangs were really running the place. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there were some like guys in like the trusty suits, and these guys looked significant. And I know I saw one guard look over, look at me, and look over at one of them, and and the guy went, "Nah, he's you know, like he's okay," and I uh, think that helped. Uh, you were cool with the gangs, and you were cool with the good guards, and you're cool with the good police. Did you you know that, don't you? Who? I mean, me? you, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you well, had my, my, you had respect, my, man. My guy got. Um, but they do they put you in? Do they put you by yourself, or did you end up with a lot of people? No, I went through the I went through the whole process. You go through a series of cells, and there was in one of them where I thought, you know, somebody something was going to happen. I just like stared the guy down, and I was in a one eye mood. You know, I don't care if I die as long as I can thumb gouge out one eye, then I'm happy. I'll die happy, and and uh, I was ready to go. Uh, old man as I am, uh, you know, if I get yeah. a, even a chance, I, you know, I don't really care what happens to me as long as I can hurt the other guy, give him something to remember me by, you know, and, and the guy backed off. And then we went through it and we, they did my, uh, you know, there's a whole intake process. And then uh, they took me up to the cells and uh, one of the guys says, put put him in, I don't know, number whatever, which was an empty cell that didn't have anybody else in it. And I think that probably saved my life. And uh, I do know I had heard that by this time uh, Sheila had gotten involved and had decided maybe it would really be good if nothing bad happened to me mm-hmm. in central booking. Um, but, yeah. I mean, it's out of control in there. Any, if anything can happen. Uh, And it's like, oh, you know, uh, I don't know if you ever watched a show called Reno 911, but it's like, and they said, well, I mean, he was kind of dead when we got here. Uh, And so, I mean, it's an interesting experience. I would recommend most citizens really not go in there. Um, So basically, I was ordered to stake out central booking <laughs> until Frank got out. I literally spent like I don't know Luke, were you were you there with me for a while? I think you came down. Did you come down for a while? Cuz I was um, literally You know, I don't really remember. I th- yeah. I may have. I, yeah. I remember because I was there when he got out and they were literally like go down to central booking 
and make sure that, you know, Frank's okay. And I'm not sure how having me out there was, but I was literally out there for like eight or nine because they didn't release him. They took a while to release him. And I, I just remember standing out there thinking, I'm waiting for my editor to come out of jail. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, what town are we living in? Then the thing that really amazed me, which I had not known, is um, Maryland has no probable cause. Every other state I've been, and I think almost every other state in the Union, if, if the state is going to deprive you of your freedom as a citizen, they have to have a probable cause hearing where they have to go before a judge and say specifically why, number one, they think a crime was committed, and number two, why they think this particular citizen is the one who did it. Okay, the level mm-hmm. of proof, of course, is much lower than a trial. But I covered probable cause hearings a lot as a reporter because that's where you really—that's where they filed the number ones the first time, and you could start getting the stuff, you know, that wasn't right. on the blotter. Not in Maryland. The only thing they have is a uh, bond hearing, and that's why you end up with people who can't make bond. You did a story about some guy who'd been in central yeah. booking for eighteen months or something like that. Yep. Didn't you? Yeah, it's yep. outrageous. Yes, if I could, I mean, that, that's like that's like 400 year old law or whatever in Maryland, and it's un-American. Were you surprised by your bail? Your bail was really high. Seventy-five thousand dollars. Seventy-five thousand dollars. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've they've had guys out on murder, manslaughter, and murder charges who get picked up for something and have lower bail. You know, was I a flight of ri- a risk? A, a flight risk. The only thing bail is supposed to be based on is a person's <clears throat> flight risk. How likely is the person to flee the jurisdiction? Now, what was the probability of me fleeing the jurisdiction? None. Zero. Right. Yeah. Zero. And they set a seventy-five thousand dollar bail. They wanted to keep my ass in there, man. And then a twist. The public perception of the arrest started to change. So the strangest thing to me happened when you're talking, Luke, about media triangulation was that C4, who's a popular uh, radio host, started taking up the case of Frank Keegan. And he started talking about gun rights, right? (laughs) And the case got cast as an example of the overreaching of government against the right of a man to bear arms. <laughs> is, okay, yes. Okay. I'm no, sorry for laughing. Yeah. It was just such an utterly, like, you know, I really thought at that point that no one would really stick up for Frank because it just felt like everyone was kind of ganging up on him in the arrest. And then suddenly the, the C4 show becomes this sort of forum for people to say, well, if a man can't have a gun in his own house, what's, do you remember that? Yeah, I do. And it was interesting because you saw the politics on it flip. Right. right, because the same people that were mad at the examiner because they thought we were being too hard on the police department mm-hmm. suddenly was defending the examiner. Right, right, because the editor of the examiner had a gun, and right. and his gun rights should be defended. <laughs> so uh, you know these these defenders of police, defended the co- people who love the who love the cops, uh, were saying, well, we also think 
that Second Amendment rights should be upheld. So, yeah, it was very interesting. And I remember it was listening really to the radio and hearing call after call defending Frank Keegan against this overreach of the government into his private home. You remember the, the, the media reaction was pretty interesting. The Sun... Oh, it's come on, don't, be, let's not even do that, okay? Y'all just, <laughs> and what a joke. Nobody, nobody in any of the stories mentioned that I, 24 hours before I'd published the entire police payroll and received death threats, you know? No, and I don't. our owner decided to go corporate and, and bunker down and, and try to pretend like it never happened. Pulled the database, which I thought, I could not believe they did that. The funny thing you know? was, though, but I do remember Luke and I talked to C4, and then C4, and all the sort of Second Amendment rights people came to your support, and it was that was weird. I I got I, I got support from the some guy who said he was an NRA guy in Baltimore, and I got support from uh, Doc, uh, the NAACP. Yeah, and uh, I thought, well, here's a unifying force, you know. And and a lawyer asked me, you know, he said, you know, you ought, you ought, you ought to sue him. You know, what what's the damage to your reputation? I said, man, my reputation went up in Baltimore. I mean, it did. That's almost did. in Baltimore. If you haven't done a little time, you don't count, right? Um, I, I you became kind of a hero. You were a hero to this. Well, I don't know about that. Sources. I don't care about that. But I got some good sources out of it. But I couldn't get people on the record. And I, I mean, I just remember one person calling up and saying, "You know, what kind of country do we have if a man can't hold a shotgun in his own house?" And, <laughs> and I just remember saying, "That's where this story is headed towards, like a guns right." But he and 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 what you're, you're Luke, you're right. I mean, people just kept calling and calling. It was like Frank became some sort of folk hero all of a sudden. Right. You know? I mean, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he denied it. And, you know, eventually, I think, I mean, I don't know what prompted the prosecutors, but they dropped all the charges. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I don't know if Jessamy ever gave you, Patricia Jessamy, who's the state's attorney at the time, ever gave you any insight. But... Yes, I, I do remember talking with them about that. Um, so there are certain... Uh, you know, when a prosecutor's trying to go forward with a case, there are two things they have to look at. One, um, is there a crime? And then two, if there was a crime, is this the person who did it? Right. So there was no dispute about the facts in this case, really. I mean, it was it was clear that it, this is Frank Keegan. He owns the gun. He's inside his house. The question was, does his actions um, make up a crime? Do they manifest a crime? And um, they ultimately determined they did not, that he mm-hmm. was perfectly allowed to have this gun inside his house, to answer his door with a shotgun, to have he hears banging on the door in the middle of the night, in the dark, in his house, to uh, cock a shotgun and have it ready to go. Um, so um, they, they said there was absolutely no crime here. And, How do you feel uh, now that you that you did this, and now it's considered routine? What was considered at that time? Well, you know, except that you, what I was told then is that it's it's bogus. It's not complete, and it's like for security reasons, it's manipulated before it's published. Hmm. Interesting. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know. I mean, how do you find that out? Yeah, I think that um, the uh, standard in the city has shifted dramatically in part because of some of our efforts. Um, There was an idea a decade ago to keep uh, this information secret. 
to have it uh, behind closed doors. We had to fight to get this information. We had to fight to put it up. We had to file public information requests. Now the city, as a matter of routine, posts the salaries and the overtime information on their website. And I think... I don't. I think almost everybody can agree that's a step for good government. I think for me, you know, something I learned is that the police have this tremendous power to shape the narrative about your life. They can take elements of any situation and turn it into news in a way that very few institutions can. You know, by coming up with this story about Frank and 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 taking advantage of you know a conflict between neighbors, they were able to criminalize him. And, you know, that's a power that I don't think sometimes we reconcile or recognize that police has in Baltimore because criminalization is a big, big rhetorical tool. And oftentimes it's used in ways I think that we all think is questionable. And so, you know, my takeaway was, wow, police could arrest me. Police could arrest Luke. Uh, They probably wouldn't arrest Luke, but they probably (laughs) they, they they might have arrested me. And, you know, suddenly you're a criminal and everything you say is considered to be, you know, um, absolutely, uh, you know, uh, without merit. So I I found it to be a little disturbing. And you think about those first 24 or 48 hours after somebody's arrested, uh, the police, that person is in jail, can't really talk, doesn't have an attorney yet. So their side of the story is almost completely silenced. And it's it's actually really hard for a reporter to even hear them out or get, get to it's them from their side of their story. I mean, let's say have an attorney right away. At, and, and meanwhile, the police department can put out the charging documents. They can have a press conference. They can put out a press release. They can mug have their, shot. their mugshot come out. They can have a, their spokesman call reporters and, and push the story. So they can get a real jump on setting the news cycle against the defendant. Yep. Um, and so it won't even be till days later sometimes that the defendant even has a chance to speak up for themselves in response. Yes, the greatest compliment we got, and that I remember, is when Malarkey was talking to some guy and the and a, an assistant U.S. attorney about some case progress in it, and she was asking him about the background, and he said, "Just look it up in your files," and she said, "Excuse me." We don't have any files. We've only been here for a year. And the guy argued with her about it. You know, he said, bullshit. You, the examiner's been here. I said, no. You know? Uh, yeah. It was a year. And that's pretty high praise. You yeah, know? Yeah. You all made it the, the uh, 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 force for good in Baltimore and in Maryland in a very short period of time. Thank you for joining us for the second installment in our series, Through the Lens, an examination of the early consequences of holding police accountable through media and personal accounts. We'd like to thank our guest, Baltimore Sun reporter Luke Broadwater, and former Baltimore Examiner editor Frank Keegan. Truth and Reconciliation is produced by Stephen Janis, Teagram, and Sean Yost for A-Spectrum Productions. Truth and Reconciliation is engineered by Sienna Greaves. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And if you have a story you'd like us to tell, please contact us. Thank you for joining us for Truth and Reconciliation. <laughs>